Hello there and welcome to Talent and Growth. I am your host, Paul Church, as always. And today I'm having my regular six to eight monthly chat with Neil Carberry, the CEO of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Neil knows what's going on in the market, the recruitment market, the TA market, the labour market, all the markets. Neil's got his fingers on all those pulses. And I think it's really important we get an understanding of where we are and where we're going. And there's absolutely some hope in the market for agents and for TA professionals. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Neil as much as I did. Here he is. Just before we go into today's episode, I've got a special offer for all our talent and growth listeners. The Anemo Group, of which I am the co-founder, are offering all our listeners a free talent acquisition audit. We will spend time with you and your business to assess your candidate experience, whether your hiring process is inclusive, the quality of the content you're putting out there, your branding, are you putting together careers pages, actually going to attract people in, all these things and more. We'll give you a free audit, which includes conversation and includes an actual report for you to take away and, and show to the rest of your business. We'll show you how you uh, compare to your competitors, to your peers, and it's all for free because we're those kind of people. If you want to have a look at that and like the sound of it, drop me a note, paul at com. Neil, welcome back to Talent and Growth. A hat-trick return for yourself. I think it's three times you've been on, so thank you for joining me again. Glad to be here, Paul. Always good to chat. Good man. Well, let's let's go straight into it. What is, and don't hold back on any good news, because uh, we'd all love to hear some, what's the current state of the labour and the recruitment market in the UK? Right, okay. We published our latest data la- uh, last week. That's for the um, the month of June. It's REC Billings data for the month of June. So it's used by the Bank of England. It's completely predictive of, of what happens. It's done by S&P Global, who do the Purchasing Managers Index as well. So it's a, a real insight. Um, what have we seen there so far this year? Um, temp, pretty much gently growing. What you need to remember now is temp, the, you know, this latest data is the 35th straight month of growing temp billings in the UK. Uh, so that's almost three years. So it's no surprise that it's just growing very gently now. There is definitely, though, some kind of push to temp going on. Uh, PERM has been dropping month on month through this year. Uh, slightly less quickly in the last month, so maybe beginnings of a sign of that bottoming out. What I'd encourage everyone to remember is 2022 in particular, but also the tail end of 2021, was a phenomenal year for perm recruitment in the UK because people were scrabbling for resources. So we're coming off that. So maybe this is a bit less a slowdown than a bit of a normalisation. So if that's the top line picture, when you dig underneath, the other thing we're starting to see is real differences between sectors. So, for instance, healthcare has been booming since the pandemic. A little bit slower now, still still growing quite nicely. IT slowed down quite a lot as the UK industries caught the cold from the uh, uh, from the valley. But I think what's really important there is IT is often quite speculative. It's often quite investment in new things. Remember that companies all often borrow to fund that. And of course, cost of capital, because of the interest in it is now is really high. In general, what I think we see when we look across at what I think we're seeing is a client base, corporate UK going, things are all right. I'm just being a bit more careful. So we're going to go temp, not perm on this. We're going to hold off on that and see how things look in September. 
So I think actually underlying this possibly quite a good story, but people are just behaving a bit cautiously. Let me flip it over to the candidate side and you see exactly the same response happening. So candidate availability has gone way up. And that's two things. One, it's in households, people thinking could do with a bit more money and maybe someone who's working part time tries to go full time or maybe uh, maybe a family with one working parent, the other parent decides to go back, the bit of that. Uh, but there's also people looking for jobs to raise their pay and that's starting to happen. So big growth in candidates looking for jobs. Still quite a lot of jobs out there, vacancies rising. Broadly, I'm relatively optimistic about where we are. The handbrake is on and the handbrake is inflation and interest rates, not because of people's mortgages, because that will take years to play out, but because of the cost of capital to businesses. And as that handbrake comes off, I actually think we could be in for maybe maybe it stays like this a little bit more into the autumn. But I think in 2024, we might actually see quite a positive market. Okay, yeah, that's that's really good to hear, and it, it's kind of rings true uh, to what the conversations I've been having. I think I think we all had a very difficult twenty twenty, and then twenty twenty one was just ridiculous. You know, it, it was in, you know a crazy year, and it was kind of two years in one, um, and everyone was kind of you know it was uh, everyone was kind of laughing, and then twenty twenty two similarly a really really good year. Um, this year, I, I think everyone's in a similar kind of position. I think what I'm what I'm hearing, and obviously you're the man with the data, and so it's backing it up, is that I don't think we're going to see like a tap turn on like drastically like we did in twenty twenty one, but we are hopefully we may and we may not even be able to feel that improvement as we're in it but if we look if we look to kind of January 2024 hopefully the world is in and the the recruitment market talent acquisition market is in a better place yeah and all we've got to remember is the underlying stuff here right I'm gonna I'm gonna go wonk on you here Paul for a second so apologies right there's two there's two sorts of changes you see in an economy right there's cyclical changes that kind of boom and bust and then there's secular changes which are where things are going to change whatever happens. So like AI, chat GPT, those are secular changes because it doesn't matter what the economy does, they're going to stick around. The UK labour market is in a place where the secular trend is towards it being tighter. That's why you see in our numbers last week, hospitality and blue collar logistics scrabbling for people still because there just aren't as many people in our labour market as there might otherwise have been. No, if there wasn't a pandemic, if there wasn't an aging society, perhaps if there wasn't uh, an end of free movement. So um, that persists, whether the economy is going up and down. So quite quickly, as confidence comes back, I think demand for recruitment comes back. Um, and the challenge to us as recruiters is to learn how to fulfill in in that labour market, because it it's not as easy as maybe it has been for the 10, 15 years before that. We're doing some work with Greg Savage, um, the Australian recruitment guru um, in and around the country in September. And that's really about talking about the traditional skills of recruitment as a human service, which we think are going to be even more necessary as we put technology to work in, ter- in terms of improving our uh, our processes. Absolutely. We'll come on to AI and technology. How could we not? Because there's lots to talk about there. Greg's a great guy as well. I've had him on the pod a couple of times. Um, I love conversations with him. Um, I suppose, as you know, before I ask this, are there any other significant trends that you've observed in the labour market in 2023? And actually, I suppose, is there anything that's really surprised you other than the emergence of AI, which we'll come on to? Has anything else really surprised you this year? The persistence of uh, inflation has been the thing that ha- has surprised me and how completely 
there's been a gap that's opened up between the private sector and the public sector in terms of response to that. In the private sector, we've seen wages move up quite significantly. Uh, you know, the average private sector pay award this spring was in the five to seven percent range, um, which is you know you go back to the public sector disputes. You're seeing yeah you know, you're seeing government uh, trying to offer people two and three percent. Um, so th- that persistence of uh, pay pressure is probably something I didn't expect. And I think it's probably made the challenges with the government's facing with strikes all the more uh, significant. The other thing that I think is still playing out is no one has sorted out what our attitude to the workplace is. Um, and what I mean by that is if you look at companies, they are they are seeing that people need connection. You know, people are struggling with resilience. They need connection with each other. But the place you can deliver connection traditionally is the workplace. So there's a big challenge in terms of how do you get your first line management and your workplace strategy right so that in doing hybrid or um, remote working, you are also achieving the level of connection and innovation in your business that that you need some businesses have gone the other way. They pulled people back completely five days a week. I think that's a bit of a risk because it removes agency and control in a tight, from staff in a tight labour market. The kind of Goldilocks solution is how can you have people in part of the time and then find ways to make sure that they are doing the things that help them connect when they're together. And all of that, to me, says invest in your first-line managers you know, invest in your desk heads in recruitment, invest in, uh, in in people who have the capacity to to make that happen. Because that sense of, you know, in our industry and in recruitment, um, you know, that sense of that we're all in it together, the team driving each other on really matters. Um, and, you know, particularly when it comes to kind of, I mentioned the traditional skills, you know, just getting on the phone. It's easier to get on the phone when you're working uh, with, with colleagues. The whole thing about, the culture and engagement of our workplaces, which is still unresolved. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a. I don't, I don't. If I had a magic wand, I don't think I'd have the answer to it exactly either. It's, it's a, it's a tough one. I actually had, um, I had a Bruce Days, Bruce, Bruce Daisley on the podcast a little while oh, ago. Good man, Bruce. Yeah, he's a great man, and he—he—he's he, uh, for those who don't know, he's the host of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and he was talking around uh, workplace culture and how and how that he thinks that businesses in these tough times are kind of romanticising what it used to be like in the past and how our yeah. culture was so good back then, and that's what we need to do. We need to go back to that, and and actually maybe it's not correct. And actually, like I suppose you you just said, you need we need to th- decide what our attitude to the workplace is, and his attitude was we need to actually redefine completely what our attitude to the workplace is and what our culture should be. It's not, it may not be a mix of what we've known before. It might need to be something completely different. Couldn't agree more with that. Um, I always think it's decent to end up agreeing with Bruce because he's usually right about these things. <laughs> um, that that piece around, often the people who talk about how great the workplace was were people who, um, for whom the workplace was great. You got to, for lots of people that culture might not have worked quite as effectively. Just as you know, for lots of kind of people on the uh, people in the business who can sit in a room like this where they have got a desk and a view over the garden outside the window, you know, working from home is great. It's not great when you're working on your mum's ironing board. 
and and so there's a there's a real balance to be struck here of um, understanding people come to the workplace in, from different starting points, and also the workplace needs to be for different things. So a whole bit of planning and frankly old-fashioned employment relations in terms of how you bring that together that requires attention. My biggest worry right now, I work with a group called the CSL who look at uh, governance and their studies that they do with the Chartered Governance Institute showed that in 2020 and 2021, all this kind of long-range thinking about culture and people shot up the agenda. It's fallen right back down now. So the question about can we as companies do some big long-term thinking about this? We hope the answer is yes, uh, because if we want to, if we want to make some progress, individuals, of course, but we're sitting in a country where, you know, unless we grow productivity, we're just going to get poorer. And we've had ten bad years on productivity. That stuff we need to make more important at the tops of our companies. Yeah, I agree. I think um, people get a bit confused about my stance on return to the office and that kind of thing usually because I'm actually, I prefer being in the office personally. But what I do believe in is choice. And I think there's a lot of underprivileged or underrepresented people who perhaps don't have that luxury and aren't, and actually be better off. And I think we, we create a more inclusive environment if we are more flexible. Um, if you were going to put your cynical hats on, do you think that, the, that, that there's a difference in... The, the world now than it was in 2021. In 2021, there was a candidate shortage. Everyone was getting, struggling to find people. Now we're in a market, I think we're in, a, I call it a market of fear because I think people are scared about the future, about their money, about cost of living, about inflation. And uh, this seems to be coinciding with businesses pushing people back to the office. Do you think there's a little bit of a, yeah, actually, we're not so bothered about the culture side of things and maybe we'll exploit this fear a little bit. And I've, I've said that, you know, it's quite a harsh way to put it. But what, what, do you, what do you think? So I think, I think businesses who think that they can do that unless they're in very specific sectors, are probably kidding themselves, storing up problems for the future. You absolutely, the, the critical thing is you have, absolutely have a right to define what you think you need in your business. And if you need people in five days a week, by all means, say it. But people might not take you up on it, depending on the picture in the labour market. There's certainly people in our business who work for us because of the flexible working offer that we made them. Uh, because we couldn't compete, frankly, as a not-for-profit with other employers who maybe did want them in five days a week. So some of it is thinking about your sector, where you're based. Um, so if you're based in central London, it's more difficult to ask people to come in five days a week than if you're in a business park on the edge of a county town where people can drive 20 minutes from home to get in. Um, so actively actively make the decisions about what you want and then test them in the labour market um, seems a much better approach than kind of just, you know, as you said, fantasising about how great it was when we were all in the office or on the flip side, because I've seen some of this, fantasising about how great it was when we were all at home because neither of those are actually perfect for for everyone. And there's, there's a big thing here about uh, test operate, learning as you go, um, so trying things, seeing if they work, being willing to being willing to change them because no one has made this work perfectly yet. Mm, agreed. One thing I do see happening, which is similar to 2020, is that um, 
I worry about the recruitment market and the talent acquisition market in the sense of I think people are leaving the industry and are going to leave the industry because talent acquisition has been flooded uh, with people being laid off. So there's so many people out there on the market who can't get jobs in talent acquisition. I think similarly, when I was working in agency side, I spotted a problem in the sense that in 2021, there were people joining the recruitment industry. They had 25 jobs on their desk and they just delivery, delivery, delivery. And you could not train them um, to do business development because they didn't need to do it. How could you get them to do it? And then when the tough times come and they always come, then they don't know how to survive and feed themselves in, in the business development. So for that reason, I see lots of recruiters, agents leaving the market, even because they're forced to, or because they think, actually, I don't like this. And I think we see a lot of talent acquisition people leaving the market because they can't get another job in TA. Do you, do you worry about that? I think that could have an impact on next year when actually the market gets better. Yeah, that's really interesting in terms of observations, but I I kind of broadly hear the same sorts of thing. I think in TA, we lost a lot of people out of agency side into TA um, in 2021 on ridiculous salaries when money was just being thrown at the wall by by, uh, the client side. And and some of that unwinding, I think, was always going to happen. on the agency side, yeah, it's really interesting. One of the reasons why we're bringing Greg over in September to do this tour is he's really doing a tour about, you know, the behaviours that help you survive as a consultant. Um, because for me, I'm hearing a lot of our members right now saying, yeah, 21 and 22, right? I had all these people up here and our kind of more experienced consultants were about there. And then this year, what's happened is these guys have gone right down and our experienced consultants are still exactly where they always were. It's BD, it's relationship building, it's walking the beat of picking up the phone. It's, you know, it's talking when even you're not, when you don't need to, to understand their business. Because I I always remember HRD saying to me, one, don't tell me that hiring is difficult. That's your job. That's why I want to pay you. And if it's difficult, I'll pay you more. Um, and and the second one being, I'm interested if you ring me up and you're solving a problem I already know I have. So, you know, client understanding, focus on, uh, on, on the solution, that relationship building, all those BD skills, really important now, important through the autumn, and I think important going forward as well. Let's talk about AI and tech in a minute. But that's the bit that the tech won't do. So, and that, and essentially, that's why Greg and I are hitting the road around the country in September to try and kind of take that kind of mission. Greg's written a great new book about it um, out around the country, try and get people thinking the right ways about how we support our consultants to keep hold of them. Because you're absolutely right. You know, if people have been doing delivery for two years and it's been easy, and then it suddenly gets hard, that's not a fantastic place to be. How can people get uh, get get involved with this this uh, this tour of you and Greg? Where where do they go? rec.uk.com uh, on the events page available to book now. Uh, Belfast, Glasgow, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, and London. Perfect. Oh, fantastic! I'm impressed with myself remembering that off the top of my head. There you go. It's obviously not your first time saying it. No, that's good. Um, cool. AI and technology. How is that and it shaping the world and the future of recruitment and talent acquisition? So exciting times. This week, we've got uh, a report out for recruitment agency owners uh, called Tech Enabled Humanity, uh, which does two or three things I've wanted to do for a while. 
Firstly, it says, actually, there's a load of tech out there that we could be adopting that would help us move forward now. Secondly, it kind of dips its toe in, well, where might we be going next with AI? And thirdly, it reminds us that, and people will know this, is your CRM is only as good as the people who use it. So about change management and adoption. And I think the, the big message for me with recruitment is if you are selling contingently um, commoditizable services where you just deliver, 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 that is going to be squeezed and tech is going to uh, take a load of that over. So you probably need to be investing in the tech so you can compete in that market. But in reality, the stuff that makes the big difference is yeah, recruitment selling imperfect people to imperfect jobs and imperfect jobs to imperfect people. Um, is the human skills, all the stuff we've just been talking about uh, that, uh, that Greg and I focus on. Um, in That's the difference maker. And it's where your consultants need to be really skilled in this world. Um, broadly with tech, you know, firms start in different spaces. My view is it's like crossing a river on stepping stones. So if you basically go CRM, data strategy, uh, automation, AI, the good thing is you can be a bit Darwinian about that because each of those steps moves you materially forward in terms of productivity and competitiveness if you do it well. And it makes you able to leap onto the next one. So the real risk, I think, for recruiters is to go AI when actually what you need to be doing now is kind of rolling the pitch so that you you can gradually, because you, you want to be leading edge on this. You don't want to be bleeding edge because you could spend a lot of money on stuff that doesn't take. Mm. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's. I think it's about... Um, it's going to move so quickly as well, and I think you, I think just from a just from a software piece of view uh, point of view, you could easily like invest in all these different types of AI focused software, which would do all these little bits. In six months' time, you might have one thing that does it all anyway. So uh, and then then you spend all these different vendors. But go on. So, so you mentioned the magic word vendor. The yeah. critical thing for any business is not to have the vendor be your technology advisor. Mm. So you know, make sure that the voice you're hearing giving you advice, if you're not skilled yourselves, is someone whose loyalty is to you as the agency owner, managing director, or head of TA, because that is where um, huge mistakes can be made. Because someone who has their loyalty to you will be able to say, actually, yeah, why don't we wait six months for that? Or we don't need that now, but the guys are telling me we do need that. So prioritization, um, basic rules of technology, you can get 80% of the utility for 50% of the price if you use a, a generic product well. Um, you can, um, and you know, the, the, the less you do kind of changing it out of the box pro- product, the more serviceable it is over its whole life. It's a whole range of things that you need to have people thinking about internally. Yeah, 100%. And are you... If you look at just the labour market as a whole and the impact of AI on it, do you are you concerned that it's moving too quickly um, for us to keep up with it? And I suppose what I'm just to give further context around that. I mean, I'm, I'm a I have a four month old son now, and I, and I think about 
what is he going to be when he grows up? You know, what is that world going to look like? And I, and I think we're just moving so quickly with AI. And I'm not sure, but suddenly, you know, are we going to need marketeers in 10 years' time? I don't know. Are we going to need legal experts? I don't know. And all these things which you thought were safe bets, software engineering, all these things we thought were safe bets um, now look like they, they've got a bit of a grey cloud over them. So do you, are you concerned in general about the impact of AI on the labour market? I am concerned. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons why uh, I'm I, I'm concerned, but I'll start with why I'm the one major reason why I'm not concerned, right? Which is this has always happened. It's always happened. It might happen a bit quicker this time. It's never an existential crisis for employment. It's always a transitional crisis. It's so worth remembering that most of the people who will go to work on the 10th of July, 2043 went to work this morning so actually one of the big challenges is how do we help those who are already in the labor market now adapt big challenge those coming through they're a bit more native to the technology now the way i think about it is this right we're sitting here having a chat on a uh on a platform that helps produce the podcast uh i can see you you can see me uh by video we are in completely different places in the country um, and it's working really well. When I was four years old, uh, like your kid, it was 1981. I'm afraid I'm a bit older than you. But, uh, and um, in 1981, uh, a recruitment agency was something that always did its business from the high street, and it mostly did its advertising in the local evening paper, which no longer exists in large parts of the country, and in little cards in the window. Um, and you know, look how far we've come in that in that span. So I think yes, there's a lot of change coming. Yes, there's lots of work to do to navigate that. But we we have the tools to do to do this. And I think particularly um, in terms of understanding how jobs reshape. So really, the challenge for companies is to understand how they support people to develop into this new world. Great example that's happening right now. Um, Rightly or wrongly, one of the signals that law firms have used for for someone being up for partnership is their commitment to the firm. Uh, And that's often tested by making them do a lot of really boring work for the first few years. So document review is a classic example where junior uh, solicitors would have spent, you know, traditionally have spent days going through documents for piles for cases and so forth. Um, AI document review is with us now. It's already with us. Um, so that's done two things. One, it's made work more productive, but actually it's taken away work for junior solicitors. So what do they do now? Because what you can't do is just not have as many junior solicitors because you need senior solicitors and partners eventually. So it's encouraging companies to think about, well, what's the, what's the, the design of work that we need to, to, to continue to have a good career path through up into senior levels. Um, I think that companies getting ahead of that would be a big contribution to our navigation of that existential challenge sorry, that transitional challenge not becoming one that throws loads of kind of people on the on the wayside. As for instance, you know, I grew up in central Scotland in the 1980s, as for instance, deindustrialization did, which we managed really, really badly. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point. I was talking about it with someone else the other day. That the things that people typically go into industry and cut their teeth with, on their way to becoming, you know, the senior people in the business. You know, if you're looking at recruitment, like the basic resourcing and stuff like that. That's the stuff that that that's what can be replaced. So actually, if you're in a senior position right now, you're probably in a really, you know, you're probably going to be fine. You're probably going to stand out um, for, for for many years. But it's just it's just hard to think what are those entry points going to look like and how do we redefine that. I think that's exactly it. And and being willing to stand back and say, right, how do we do this? Mm. Because I think the um, the challenge is towards us having ever, small, ever smaller, ever more specialist teams. Um, but if everyone's doing that, you know, it's the equivalent of, it's the equivalent of apprenticeships policy, right? One of the reasons why apprenticeships policy is taking up so much time in the last 20 years is I can give you the names of a few companies, British Coal, British Steel, British Rail, British Leyland. Okay? Right? With the possible exception of British Rail, absolute basket cases as companies. But that is the industrial training school that has kept British engineering going for the last 50 years. And the challenge in apprenticeships is the, the people who came through those companies are now retiring. And the same might happen here, which is if you're, where does the, so there's a big challenge in terms of how do people transition into the labor market? How do they get experience? And we're going to have to be a bit more open eyed on that. There's some interesting stuff going on though. I mean, I think um, central government policy on skills is pretty moribund at the moment. But if you look at the work that Andy Street's doing in Birmingham or the work Andy Burnham's doing in Manchester, that's really stitching together local employers, local skills providers, and uh, people coming out of the education system. That, I think, that kind of local linkages seems to me to be uh, an area that we need to get more involved in, especially because, you know, that's where your future entrepreneurs come from. Because the real risk to a country like the UK is people are what we've got in terms of you know the quality we've we've built on having really good agglomeration effects of bright people stable law and ability to be innovative that's what we've got to compete in in the 21st century because we're not going to be the world's biggest economy um, and we're not massively resource rich although clearly you know building windmills offshore of the united kingdom is quite a good energy strategy because it, yeah, the weather's a bit windy here yeah, it certainly is. Certainly is. And what, what about what about the impact of AI on? I suppose if we go a bit deeper with the edu- of, of the education system, because I mean, are you, if you're a teacher right now and you're you're looking at your curriculum, you might be thinking, what is any of this relevant? Is it going to be relevant to these kids in fifteen, sixteen years? I mean, what impact do you see it having on on that and whether the, the reform, hopefully, around that? Um, can I be slightly provocative? Please. None. There's nothing wrong with the school curriculum. I, I, I genuinely, um, basic science, basic history, basic maths, basic English. I mean, the you, uh, these things really matter, and we need to be really careful here. And I, 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 I wear another hat uh, as a as a uh, governor of a couple of education institutions. The education and skills are not the same thing. Mm. Yeah, schools are there to produce young people who are culturally literate and have 
are and able to make their way in adult society, that they're numerate, that they can talk to you. That's why I actually have some sympathy with the point that Keir Starmer was making the other week about um, about oracy, about being able to the spoken word. I think plenty of recruitment agency owners would say, you know, getting people off email and onto the phone in terms of getting things done is a is a big issue. And the challenge is actually what happens then. So it's much more in what's the path through FE and HE further in higher education and apprenticeships, where I think we're we need some radical reform. Yeah, do you know what? I, I agree with you actually. I think look, those fundamental skills and you know, teaching people to be well rounded and getting those getting those brains working, I think that's okay. I suppose I'm thinking about when we get to that point of thinking, right, how are we going to direct these kids into a certain profession? And I think that is just so much more unknown now uh, than perhaps we've ever had it. Well, how do you give things a go? That's the main thing. I mean, I don't know mm. about you, but most me and most of my friends, we tried that, we tried this, tried that. Oh, quite like this. There seems to be a part, you know, there's um, the you know, experimentation in the, in your 20s on, on a career path is kind of normal. Um, in this world, how do we ensure that still happens? Um, and how do we make sure that people have the experience they need? Because we talked earlier about out kind of the hybrid work and back to the office and all of that. You know, the experience of lots of young people who've come into work since 2020 is not as education rich as the experience mm. of young people who came into work before that because they aren't sitting next to you or me or any of the other colleagues and picking stuff up. I mean, I don't know about you, but certainly my career has been aided on a few occasions by being in the right place at the right time. Of course. And, and we have to give young people the opportunity to be there. It's actually one of the difficult conversations that as a business leader that you need to have with your senior staff, which is, you know, I absolutely know you can be productive at home if you're at home full time. Absolutely get that. Trust you, high performer, think it's great. But part of your job is to be here so these guys can see you. And just being really clear about that. And then what more can you do? It's about reaching into um, in, into communities. I'm really pleased with some work we've done at the REC in-house, uh, placing 1,200 people out of long-term unemployment into opportunities with members in Yorkshire and London over the last year and a half. Um, and the lesson there is when you give people a chance, it usually works out. If you if you do the due diligence on how on the pathway they walk, so I think there's some kind of this tight labour market probably encourages businesses to lean in on that, and it's probably the right thing to do. And for us as recruitment agencies, if we can help clients to do that, that has got to be a winning uh, formula. I was talking to one of the biggest members of the uh, uh, REC a couple of weeks ago, and they said. Actually, what we found is with a balanced scorecard, we can go to clients and a number of clients have said, look, if you can sort sort our uh, EDI problem out, you, you know, the amount of work you get is just going to go through the roof. So the, these things about kind of client relationships and solving the problem of, uh, of accessing talent marries right up to, you know, I think, I think we may have discussed this before, the triangle I always think about, which is what do you buy? It's going to cost you more, higher, plug and play, permanent. What do you borrow? You take from the industry as agency or as contractor. And what do you grow? And advising on how people grow it also matters. It matters to individual companies in a tight labour market, but it also matters to society as a whole in terms of giving you know, young, uh, young people, whether they're 
four or 24 the pathway when they get there. Yeah, love it. Okay. Um, okay, what, what, what advice would you give to businesses who are looking to attract and retain talent in the current market environment with a view to looking at the bigger picture for the next couple of years? Because, of course, you know, what the reality is right now isn't going to be the reality you know, for much longer. So what's your advice around that? Um, firstly, it's all environmental, right? Um, so think about your sector. Think about your uh, where you're based in the country and even right down to, you know, is it an office? Is it a city centre office? Is it an edge of town office? You know, what what kind of pathways do people have to get to get to? Because that's kind of the environment. Then, what are your own staff telling you? Um, because you know, you, recruitment is the other side of the coin from retention. So, why do people like working for you? What's the offer that keeps them with you? As you want to leverage that in your offer, and then where are we going? What's the strategy of the business? In terms of you know what skills are we going to need more of? What skills are we going to need less of? When you wash all that together, you can identify the types of candidate you want, and there will be a talent pool. Talk to uh, talk uh, uh, talk to your recruiter if you're in TA. If you're an agency, have a think about the supply in your area and more broadly, and then start to think about what the balance is. Now you might be. Um, in a in a sector in a town with a lot of people working in that sector, where where you know it's quite small, people don't have to travel too far to get to work. There's a reasonable bus service, in which case you're looking at pay and maybe some of the other ancillary benefits. You know, people like flex flexible working is always a winner. Um, you might find that there are fewer people to hand. In which case you're talking about well, how often do I need those people? And also, what sort of basis can I engage them on? Classic example was talking on the radio earlier today about our uh, new data. Um, lots more older workers in in the potential labour pool now. Um, they're not likely to want to do five days a week. So maybe you want to think about, can I offer four or three? And if I offer four and three, is that a job share? Is it two and a half, two and a half? Or, or is it we just accept that that's when we can have them? I think the critical thing, this is a, that was a long run up to the to the short answer to your question, which is always to remember the smallest unit of work is not a job. It's a task. So what are the ta- what's the agglomeration of tasks that you want done? And how could that be shaped in different ways that suit your environment? That's the the, the critical thing. You know, there's the old thing about a asking a room full of employers how many typists they employ and the answer is always zero and I kind of sit there and go well no it's the answer is everyone you employ because everyone's a typist now we do it on our smartphones mm. yeah, the, the task still exists we've just brought it into our jobs because we don't need to outsource it to a specialist now mm. yeah I appreciate that way of looking at it okay and um Salary transparency has become mm. uh, a really big topic. US, it's already been implemented. I think some companies are trying to get around it in the US by putting salaries in adverts, but putting like, oh, between 100 and 250 grand a year. So they're trying to, they're trying to be a bit tricky with it, but it's there and that'll get, ref- um, that'll get refined. In the EU, uh, there's recently been some legislation really kind of putting some weight behind their push for salary transparency and equity in the workplace. Do, there's an impact of both of those uh, of the EU and the US on the UK because a lot of companies are kind of international, of course. But do we see it coming into play in this, to the same magnitude in the UK? So there's a big cultural issue in the UK, yeah, which is we are 
kind of, we don't talk about money as much. Um, mm. I do think that there is, a, my personal view is that when you advertise a job, you should give a pretty clear uh, steer on the salary. Mm. Um, I do think that in the UK, that will increasingly become expected. And obviously we've got gender and at some stage we'll have ethnicity pay reporting um, mandated by law, mm. uh, for at least for larger firms. Do I see anything happening legally that requires firms to be completely open about salaries? No. Um, do I think um, there will be pressure on some firms to be more open about how their structures work? Yes, but I think it will take a long time to play out. So for now, I think you, you won't be thinking about having a clear salary structure and advertising the salary openly when you're, when you're uh, hiring. I think um, those things I would class as companies just getting onto the right foot for where this debate's going. Mm, I think it's I think it's good to get because I think whether the the legal side comes into play and I think I think you're right I don't think anything's going to happen dramatically soon but I think it's uh, it's almost it's almost a selling point if a company is very open about they are a transparent business this is the kind of company we are you know all our yeah. all our salaries are out in the open and that is a selling point and I think what it's, it's good to set that up now because actually getting your salaries in house sorted out that's a big job you're not going to sort that out in thirty days you know you're going to you're going to need probably eighteen months to two years aren't you. Well, especially if you've uh, if the firm you're in is uh, an agglomeration of previous firms where you can have mm. multiple terms and conditions. I did I, in a previous job. I did once work with a uh, w- with an employer who had a hundred staff and ninety six different sets of terms and conditions, which is an, ex- <laughs> an extreme example of the need for harmonisation. But it is always worth remembering that somebody promised someone something sometime in the past, and you don't. Probably don't know all the details of it, so it takes. Yeah, you're right. It takes loads of work. Yeah, and then look, Neil. Final, final. I suppose pieces to put a bow on this is um, just your one final final words for two people. Actually, you want to put your put your um, yourselves in the, the shoes of two different people. One is the recruitment agency owner who is uh, just struggling uh, to get that new business in to get clients over the line. Is wishing for twelve months ago. Um, is, is you know is finding it difficult. What what is your bit of positivity and outlook for them? And then also to that person in talent acquisition who has been looking for a job now for three or four months, wants to stay in TA, loves TA, can't get interviews, can't get jobs. What, what's your advice for those two people or, or words of wisdom, if you like? So um, recruitment agency owner, one is, yeah, don't do business just because it's business. So, you know, top line, top line that doesn't fall to bottom line isn't worth doing and it's actually distracting from stuff that it, it is worth doing at the time like this cash is king so you know preserving the cash flow position of the the, the business really, really matters but the fundamentals of the british labor market are pro the sector now in a way that they weren't 10 years ago or 20 years ago the the, the tight the underlying tightness of the labor market means that as we come through this current period we ought to see good demand for well-run companies. So it's focus on kind of cash management. There is a way forward. Client relationships matter even more in times when things are tough. And that's that's actually what I hear from a lot of REC members, which is things aren't bad, they're just hard. 
and that that feels res- uh, relevant to me. In terms of uh, folk in, uh, in TA looking for a position, well, obviously, I think they should always consider coming across the bridge into agency because you know it's a great, <laughs> it's a great place to be. Um, but um, the the thing that isn't going to change here is that companies will struggle to hire. And they need to get clever about how they hire. So I think investment in TA comes back. I think it's a bit like the football manager who gets the sack and then gets a new job a year or six months later. I always remember, I think it was Gordon Strachan saying, yeah, I went over to La Mezia to, uh, to watch Barcelona train while I was off. Yeah, so it's really thinking about What's your you know, what's your read on what's happening now that that will enable you to make a difference when there's funding coming back into TA roles as there will because of the tightness of the labour market, uh, so staying engaged on that, and then obviously in the meantime, I'm sure there are many REC members who can help out with some temp work. Fantastic, Neil. Always a pleasure to have you on Talent and Growth. I'll be looking forward to checking you checking in with you in six to eight months' time, and who knows what the world looks like then. Pleasure, Paul. Always happy to pop on. That's it from me and from Neil. There's hope out there, people. If you are a recruitment agency and you're struggling, you're finding it difficult, when's it going to turn? I hope you've taken some positivity from that conversation. And if, like many of my network, you work in talent acquisition and you are finding it difficult to get interviews, get jobs, that coin is turning. The market is turning. It will get better. Stay positive, stay strong. The good times will be back again. I'll see you next week.